This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, the business station. My name is Rich Bradbury, uh, and we're back with more weird science stories here on Matt's Splained. And this week, we have, of all things, on what is supposed to be a tech show, a bunch of tech-related stories. Uh, Has it been a slow week for science, Matt? Hey, Rich. Well, maybe it's just been a good one for tech. So I was going to start with the news or the news of the rumors that the soon-to-be-released iPhone 13 would have satellite phone functionality. Uh, In fact, I I think the phone is due next week on the 14th. Uh, These leaks came via the well-known tech analyst, Ming-Chi Kuo, who frequently nails the upcoming functionality and design changes in Apple's new releases. And while this sounds really exciting and, of course, expensive, (laughs) the intention, if it is in the phone's hardware profile, is probably to boost 5G coverage, not to let you make calls from the middle of wherever. Because we're... Yeah, exactly. So we're seeing, uh, well, you don't need the Amazon. We're in Malaysia. Yeah, uh, you know, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, we're seeing private operators like uh, Elon Musk, Starlink, and competitors like OneWeb extend their low Earth orbit internet services. Mm. And without going into too much of the kind of 5G technology, because we've covered it before, 5G, although it's a lot faster than 4G LTE and it offers a lot more network capacity. 5G relies on millimeter waves, which have a range of uh, just around 700 meters, whereas the the waves for 4G, they have a a, a 10 kilometer uh, max uh, range. So 5G requires a lot more towers to put that infrastructure together. Uh, You said you were going to start with this story. Well, yeah, because it's kind of a, a story or a not story, you know, and I guess I'm already telling it in a sense. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so the subsequent reports of rumors of the leak suggest that it might be a bit less interesting in the, the short term, certainly. So that satellite functionality might be limited to making emergency calls just for the, the, the nearer duration. And I know that doesn't sound like much to city dwellers, but lots of people do live in areas where where cell coverage is patchy or non-existent. You know, I always worry when my missus is off doing jungle adventures and can't get in touch for a a day or two. So Mm. this is a a welcome addition, um, but not the kind of game changer that it might have been. And of course, knowing Apple, by the time they're ready to turn that circuit on, Android phones will have been doing it for two generations at least. Yeah. So... No news is, well, no news. Well, you know, you've got to make something out of nothing. Turn that spark into a flame, which is the perfect link into radioactive snakes. Or rather, using radiation (laughs) levels in snakes to find out how well the area surrounding the Fukushima nuclear power plant in Japan 
is recovering. Uh, so, I think that could well be your best segue ever, Matt. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> uh, animals and plants have long been used as bioindicators, uh, not just for radiation, but for all kinds of pollutants, hence the canary in the cage that mm. miners would take down the shafts with them. In the event of gases being present in the tunnels, the canaries, which are far more sensitive than people to the gases, would pass out much earlier, giving the miners time to escape. Mm. Um, a lot of people probably expect that the uh, the Fukushima exclusion zone um, is a bit of a barren wasteland. You know, you play video games, that kind of thing. Well, yeah, you know, that was the popular image of nuclear disaster, especially when, I guess, we were both growing up. You know, yeah. the, the nuclear winter, all the animal and plant life dying, Denzel Washington marching around eating cats. But, you know, what we've seen in previous limited nuclear accidents like Chernobyl is that the area surrounding the accident, because it's toxic to people, becomes a haven for wildlife mm. and the land starts to rewild. So you do see mutations, but not so much of the three-eyed monkeypotamus kind. Uh, yeah. And you know, that would be a terrifying creature, by the way. The monkey potamus, it would be a hippo with the smarts and the dexterity to get into your fridge. Oh, but Lord. the longer term mutations have been things like changes in plumage with some species of birds. So that kind of thing. Um, so why snakes and not birds? Well, not every animal species is a great candidate as a bioindicator. So in this instance, the authors of the paper that was published in July in Ichthyology and Herpetology, uh, one of my favorite journals, great cartoons, mm. it found that uh, rat snakes were a really good indicator. So you mentioned birds, of course, birds fly. So even if the species isn't migratory, it's still going to have a fairly large range. So any pollution or contaminants that they pick up or absorb are not going to tell you very much because right, you don't right. know where they pick them up beyond yep. a fairly large general area. Rat snakes, on the other hand, don't have wings. Yeah, they don't travel that far in a day, right? Yeah, they spend their life obviously in a much smaller area. That way, by comparing one snake to another, you can find out where there are hot spots and areas which may be more or less contaminated. So to address the, the second part of that previous question, it's also to do with what contaminants you're looking for and how likely that species is to absorb it. So in Fukushima, a lot of the contamination has settled into the soil. So birds might have limited exposure to those contaminants because they spend most of their time in the trees, mm. whereas snakes spend more time slithering on the ground. So in an earlier study, the same team of researchers found that levels of the isotope radiocesium in the snakes corresponded to levels of radiation in their surroundings. So there are uh, behavioural aspects. Well, definitely. And in case you're wondering, the scientists weren't catching snakes and cutting them up, at least as far as I can tell. They caught as many as they could uh, at spots within the exclusion zone, and they taped a GPS tracker and a radiation dosimeter to the snakes. <laughs> that way, they, I know, it's quite a, you know, the Watching scientists gaffer tape a snake has got to be a, a strange experience. But, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, that way they were able to tell where the snakes had been. And that's really helpful because it turns out that uh, snakes like hunting in buildings and man-made structures. 
because when we see these disasters, the the radioactive material isn't distributed equally. It's not mm. a uniform blanket. The airborne particles settle in different concentrations in different places. And as rat snakes spend more time on the ground and less time in trees than other snake species in the, the area, it makes them a fairly decent bellwether. I mean, you you could just walk in with a, a Geiger counter and, and measure the background radiation levels. Um, why bother catching snakes? Well, it's all about the uh, the Instagram profile. Now. No, I'm just joking. Um, you know, there are <laughs> easier ways to look at that top line information, yes. Um, but it helps to tell us a lot about the environment and the food chain in contaminated areas. Mm. So how much of the radiation are the animals absorbing from food and prey, for example? Mm. How much are they absorbing from their environment? For example, the study showed that animals that spent more time in buildings generally had lower radiation levels, suggesting that the buildings act as some kind of shelter. Yep. More than that, you know, it gives us insights into how flora and fauna react to long-term exposure to radiation contamination, which might have applications, unfortunately, for our own species in the longer term. Ah, well, I, I'm glad we ended that story on a cheery note. Well, in that case, let's stick with uh, wastelands, uh, or oh. at least a plan to control one of them. The well, why not then? Yeah, the enormous Sahara, the world's largest hot desert. One of the um, you know really sad things about climate change is that it pushes humans and animals into ever smaller areas of habitable land, mm. because you know we're not equally distributed across the planet. Roughly 40% of the world's population lives within 100 kilometers of a coast. Uh, rising sea levels, of course, are pushing people back from those coasts as land falls back into the seas. And some people are being pushed further uh, by drought and desertification from those central areas and actually towards those narrowing coastal strips. Mm. So just to give you an idea of the scale, the Sahara is roughly 10% larger now than it was uh, 100 years ago. And China is reported to lose around 3,500 kilometers squared of grassland to the encroaching Gobi Desert every single year. Is this a geoengineering story? Well, it is in a sense. You know, we have this habit of looking to future technologies to save us, you know, like building a Dyson sphere around the planet to help cool it. You know, it's great to have that option or just to move off planet with Jeff and Elon and start the devastation somewhere else. But there are more traditional approaches. And right. this is something, you know, we've reported on before. Buildings in India, new builds that are looking at centuries old techniques for cooling rather than relying on power hungry HVAC systems that mm. actually increase that urban heat island effect. Simple things like having a pool of running water at the foot of the atrium. Yeah. Similarly, you know, we've seen city planners in China look to the traditional village structure with stepped rice terraces and adapting that for modern city planning as a way to conserve water, uh, reducing and retaining rainwater runoff, and again, cooling that surrounding environment. So this relates to the uh, Great Green Wall. Well, yes. Yeah. So the Green Wall mm. was an African Union-sponsored and UN-supported plan that was put forward in 2007, which planned to ring the Sahara with newly planted trees. 
But the scheme has had limited success. Uh, Some of the reasons have been geopolitical, but other factors have been practical. The soil surrounding the desert might not support an abundance of newly planted trees. And Mm -hmm. then there's the infrastructure. Governments or NGOs might come in and plant these new forests, but who's going to maintain them? And is there any money for local communities to continue that upkeep and preservation? So recently in Senegal, a new method is uh, or has been trialed. Uh, It's much simpler. It's based around gardens that are built in communities and for communities. So that way there's more community support and there's more social investment in the projects. So like a a bit of grass and a, a football pitch. Yeah, we're demonstrating how English we are when it comes to the uh, idea of a garden, I think. Um, I'll, you know, I'll just get my lawnmower. Yeah, exactly. Um, no, these are, are working gardens. They're providing food. So mm. what's interesting about them is their design, which is circular. They're known locally Ooh. as a, a tolu cur, and different kinds of crops and plants plants are placed in different rows. So you might have medicinal plants in one of the inner rows. You mm. might have papayas and cashews in the uh, the middle and baobab trees uh, along the outer rings. It's designed by the Senegal-born agricultural engineer, Ali Dia. The idea is that the gardens should be permanent and they make the best use of the local soil conditions to grow plant species that are best suited to that location. So uh, I assume it also adapts really well to uh, local farming methods as well. Yeah, I mean, it's designed to be flexible. So we talked about termites on our last Weird Science show and how their gut enzymes can help to treat wood in bioreactors. According to the report on this I read in Wired, in Burkina Faso, farmers spread manure on the fields to encourage termites to tunnel and aerate the soil. And research has shown that the termites actually add nutrients to the soil and may even help to boost crop yields. So that's another, you know, whoop, whoop, hooray for our termite friends. But that point about the concentric rings in the garden is that it aids water retention. So we're talking about places that are arid, so Mm. irrigation is obviously an issue. So you put your thirstiest plants in the centre and you work outwards, making Mm. sure that each plant gets the ecosystem that it needs to prosper. So if the initiative is uh, successful, it's going to expand beyond the current uh, 20 gardens that have been cultivated. And we may have one more tool to help us slow that spread of the Great Sahara and to provide communities around it with much-needed resources. Interesting stuff. Um, glad we're ending, ending on an almost happy note. Uh, and of course, when we come back, birth control that treats men like a virus. Yeah, you tuned in to Matt Splained here on BFM 89.9. Financially Minded, BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. My name is Rich Bradbury. This is Matt Splained. It is Weird Science. Um, I know you'll probably want to make people wait uh, for the old men are viruses story, Matt. Well, don't worry, I'm not going to tease everyone today. So this is uh, another story that I saw on Wired. Obviously, as you said before the break, it's about 
birth control. Mm. And it's about various efforts to use similar monoclonal antibody processes that have allowed us to create COVID vaccines so quickly as a tool to prevent unwanted pregnancies. So it's essentially a pregnancy vaccination? Sort of. Um, when this technology first appeared in the 1980s, the WHO looked into the possibility of uh, pregnancy vaccination. They established a contraceptive vaccine task force. But, you know, I think you can imagine some of the problems that it ran into. This isn't like a flu jab. If this vaccine doesn't work, you know, children are a plague that lasts for decades. And vaccines are very complicated. Mm. Different people react differently to uh, to the vaccine. They have a, a different uh, immune response. Whereas most contraceptive methods, the daily hormone pills, the implants, condoms, they can quickly be discontinued if a woman wants to get pregnant or simply doesn't need any contraceptive cover at that particular time. Yeah, and whereas reversing the effects of a vaccine uh, would be uh, a lot less certain. If you make it like a traditional vaccine, then yes. So the WHO uh. discontinued their work in part because some women might become infertile after the jab or that they would have to wait months or years before it would be possible for them to become pregnant. But now with the advances that have been made with monoclonal antibodies, it's possible to create kind of short-term vaccinations that are applied locally that may provide cover for a few days at a time or a week or two. Uh, uh, we've yet to get to the part about vaccinating against men. Pure clickbait on my part, um, although I'm sure there would be people who would welcome that. But, you <laughs> no know, we, yeah, we all know how uh, antibodies work. Uh, our immune systems create proteins that attack invaders like viruses. We're born with some of the antibodies uh, and we develop others after we contract certain illnesses. So our bodies create the mechanisms to prevent reinfection. Mm. But as we know from the monoclonal coronavirus vaccines, these proteins can also be created in a lab. So with most vaccines, you want to stimulate the body to create its own version of the antibodies because that creates the longest possible coverage. These new contraceptive approaches apply the cultured antibodies to a very thin ring or film, which can then be applied vaginally. This targets and causes the this targets and causes the sperm to coagulate and tangle, stopping them from completing their journey of fertilization. Is this all uh, theoretical or are we actually close to a, um, a working solution? Well, some of these are actually in human trials. Uh, Boston University Medical School has conducted a phase one clinical trial with a small group of volunteers. The results were very promising, with the film that was used in the trial creating coverage for about 24 hours. But there needs to be more done, uh, more research done rather, to test its efficacy over the longer term. Mm. So it could be a decade or more before we see anything hitting the shelves commercially, let alone being available in pharmacies off prescription. Mm. But, you know, that is the nature of medical research. You're looking into the future at something that might be. Uh, researchers are also looking to develop a monoclonal gel containing the antibodies that men can apply. So this is just one more development in a growing list of new birth control options that are currently in development, including, of course, that long-awaited hormonal contraceptive for men. Um, 
Just a reminder, you did promise tech stories on this episode. Noted. So I'll skip the uh, story about men with healthy gut flora being more flatulent. Uh, you can look that story up for yourselves. <laughs> I found it at New Scientist, but I'm sure it's wafted all over the internet by now. Well, uh, we, sorry. Uh, we <laughs> do have to mention the big crypto story this week, which yeah. is that as of the 7th of September, Bitcoin has been recognized as legal tender in El Salvador mm -hmm. alongside the US dollar. Uh, we've seen a lot of countries trying to control cryptocurrencies. Uh, Facebook's first attempt, Libra, got mired in regulatory issues. China, which has tried to effectively ban the use of the currency by its citizens, has been turning up the heat on Bitcoin this year, with its central bank closing down companies deemed to have facilitated Bitcoin trades. Which isn't to say that governments aren't pursuing their own digital uh, 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 cryptocurrencies. Very much so. But the decentralized nature of most independent cryptocurrencies, you know, obviously scares governments. Yeah. What, what we're seeing is El Salvador is a country moving in the opposite direction. What's even more surprising about this is that the legislation making it possible was only passed 90 days ago, three mm. months ago. So we will come back to this story. We'll do a full show on it once it becomes clearer how that rollout is going. Uh, the government has decreed that banks should charge no conversion fees on moving money from Bitcoin to dollars or vice versa. And they're introducing their own wallet known as the Chivo. <laughs> But with such a, a rapid time frame, a lot of the details have only started to emerge in the days and weeks before this adoption came into effect. So uh, what's the thinking behind this move then? Well, no one is entirely sure. It seems to be a passion project for the country's president, Naib Bukele. One theory is that it will make it easier for Salvadorians overseas to make remittances to family members, which uh, is crucial for the country. It brings about $6 billion annually into the uh, Salvadorian economy. Mm. And of course, to attract foreign investment and collaboration with the crypto community, which is facing pushback in a lot of countries. So critics have also postulated that the government is fearful of economic sanctions being imposed and Bitcoin, having Bitcoin as an official currency might make it easier to avoid some of those sanctions. Right. Because on the face of it, it does seem a little bit baffling. Yeah. Uh, according to some of the reports I read, only about a third of the country has access to the internet. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, there's widespread concern from employers and workers about using the currency for salaries and purchases, given its speculative volatility. But as I said, early days, we'll come back to the story when we have a, a better picture of how widespread use of the currency becomes. And whether ordinary people start to use it or just stick with the US dollar. Precisely. So we'll see what that adoption curve looks like down the, the road from now. But mm. um, from one blocking story, I want to go to another one, this time a, a more positive one, I guess. This is the announcement by Twitter that it is set to launch an official soft blocking feature. Uh, as many of you who've spent time on the platform know, it can be you know, a really entertaining and informative place to be, but mm -hmm. it can also quickly derail into trolling and abuse. So the soft block allows you to stop some of your followers seeing your tweets in their feed. So it's a little bit like the close friends option that 
Instagram introduced earlier this year. But, but why not just block them if you don't want them to see your posts? Well, that can end up being divisive in itself. You know, you've seen so many tweets of people saying, I've just been blocked by. Uh, and that right, can spur, yeah. yeah, and that can spur some users to simply turn up the abuse. And also because sometimes you don't want to tell the world, you want to tell just a, a, a few people. So those restricted users would still be able to see the person's posts. They just have to go to your profile to do it. Mm. And, you know, it's something that users have been doing for a while. Anyway, they've been using their own workarounds. You just block and then unblock someone. So that user would have to follow again in order to see your tweets in their field. Mm. Uh, according to The Verge, Twitter is also looking at more granular options. So that would be a version of that close friends function with options to limit who say, uh, who sees the tweets at the time that you actually send it. Okay, um, I think we've got time for another quick one. Any more freaky communication topics um, in your weird little box? Well, I was quite taken with this story I saw on New Scientist. Uh, it's a US-based startup called Sanas that's developed an AI-based software that detects the accent of the person you're talking to. Ooh. And it can then modify your own accent in real time to more closely match that of the person that you're speaking to. So we don't know exactly how it works because the company claims it's black box technology and mm. won't reveal their tricks. We do know that it's based on uh, phonemes, the sounds that make up words. So it changes your voice in blocks as you speak rather than waiting for you to finish each word. Hang on, though, but if it's cloud-based processing, wouldn't there be a lag in modulating the voice? Well, unlike a lot of uh, natural language processing software and voice assistants like Alexa, the software is locally stored on your phone or laptop rather than in central or cloud servers. Uh, and that means it will work with apps like Zoom and Teams as well. Uh, Sanas claims the local approach speeds up modification times and it makes those calls more secure because there isn't that extra journey to the server for someone else to hack into and listen in on. So the thinking behind the idea is that it will reduce miscommunications and difficulties in phone operators being understood. Mm. So, you know, we know it's going to end up being used by a lot of call centers, but <laughs> you can also imagine it being used in things like emergency hotlines or other more critical functions where there is uh, often an urgent need for caller and operator to uh, understand each other very quickly. So, you know, imagine being able to choose to listen to this show in the accent of your choice. I've always fancied having a Geordie accent, and now I can. Why are you, man? I was hoping you'd do that. <laughs> I wasn't going to. <laughs> Thank you very much, Matt. Very interesting stuff. Thank you. Pleasure as always. All right. You can find Matt on Instagram and Twitter at CultureMatt. Uh, you can also head over to culturepop.com for transcripts of these shows and information about CulturePop and its consulting services. You've been tuned in to Matt Splained here on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.